Well, good morning, Aldergrove. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it is really good to be with you today. I feel like it's a long time since I've seen you, but it's been a week. But I was away this week. I was in California for a conference. And so whenever you go away and come back, you're like, oh, it's so good to finally be with you again. Now, you think California for a conference. I went with Tim McCarthy. Um, I also work with small groups here at North Langley, so the two of us went for a small groups conference. And when you think California, what do you think? You would think it poured rain. We left when it was like 12 degrees and raining and showed up and it was like 14 degrees and raining. It was not super pleasant. But on the upside, in the opening announcements, they said that the rain kept the snakes down. So, I guess rain's good. <laughs> but conferences like that, I always enjoy the opportunity. I like conferences in general, but to be able to go and talk to people at churches um, all over the place. And just to hear that people are asking the same questions, they have the same heart, the same hunger, uh, regardless of church size, and to hear what God is doing in churches everywhere. It's encouraged. It's not, it's not just us. We are connected to, to all believers everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And so it's just a, a beautiful opportunity. Uh, Tim and I were the only Canadians there. And so if you notice that my speech starts to get a little longer in some of the vowels. I talked to a lot of people from Oklahoma, from Texas, Louisiana. So if I start saying things like Bible and <laughs> gathering, uh, that's, that's why I actually halfway through the conversation started to pick up their speech. Uh, but one fellow from Oklahoma that I met, he was sharing with me that this Sunday is a really significant Sunday for him. Um, like our church, their church is a multi-campus church, and this Sunday they are announcing that the campus that's been there for 10 years is closing down. And for him, he was sharing how hard it was to know that this was coming. But he said about six months ago, God told him, prepare for transition. And he didn't know what it meant, but when he was called into the office and he found out that the campus would be closing, he said, I'm so glad that God told me because I wasn't devastated. And for me, I, I think that that's such a beautiful picture of Jesus' heart. That you might be new to Jesus or new to church, and if you are, I'm really glad you're here, but when you hear the phrase, God told him, you might think that that's absolutely bizarre. Or you might think that that's the most beautiful thing in the world. But when we follow Jesus, this, this Jesus person we're talking about, he's not just a worldview or an idea, he's a person who talks to us, who walks with us. And Paul's words, that's who, that was his name, Paul, he, they resonated. I, I wasn't devastated because God told me. And that lines up with what we're talking about today. We're continuing our series in the book of Luke. And over the last little while, we've been seeing Jesus walk through the temple and, and he's engaging with different people. Now the temple, like we would call this a church building, and the temple was similar to that in that uh, the Jewish people would go to the temple and expect to see God's presence there. But for them, it was also kind of like parliament for, go for, for government. It was a seat of power. It was a symbol of national identity. 
It was like Rogers Arena for the Canucks. You show up in the arena and you're like, oh, I'm in the same building that these people are in. It was the idea of being in God's presence on national identity. It was a really, really big deal. So Jesus is in the temple and there's this open space where people can mingle and mix and ask questions and hear people teaching. And Jesus talked a lot about money. So early in the year, we talked about how Jesus says we don't actually own what we have. We're just stewards. We're taking care of it. Uh, last week, Kevin was talking about heaven. Uh, he, he said a number of very interesting things, if you missed the sermon, that in heaven will be Pokemon. <laughs> he told us that he was going to be a bride, but all of that was anchored in the idea that the reality of heaven is much bigger than we can imagine. And so kind of hold that in the back of our thoughts, that Jesus is in the temple, that he's teaching and talking to people, and the reality of heaven is much bigger than we can imagine. So we're looking at Luke 21 this morning. It's a long passage. So I would encourage you, if you have a Bible app, open it up. Uh, paper Bible, if you use the one in the pew, it's page 496. If you don't have a Bible at home and want the paper Bible, just take it. Like, we want you to have it. It's not stealing, it's just take it. But just hold it open the whole morning. We're going to kind of pop into it. So Luke chapter 21. And as we read, there's two things I want you to look for. Number one, what does Jesus say will happen? So just look for the word will. And secondly, what does Jesus say the disciples should do? So will and commands or imperatives or you should do this, you should do that. Those are the two things we're going to look for. Luke 21, verse 5 through 37. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, uh, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences, another word for pandemic, in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. 
Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. And this is the word of the Lord. This passage is like what happens to cars in a hailstorm. Dense. Dense? (laughs) I can't tell if it's not funny or if people don't get it. (laughs) There is a lot here. There is a lot here. Um, And we won't get to all of it. We're going to go back and unpack a little of it. So Jesus here is walking with his disciples. And they're walking through the temple, the symbol of national identity, part of their nation, their religion, their culture. To everyone else, the temple was a representation of God's presence with Israel. God's approval of the kind of people they were. It was God saying, if you want to know who God is, come to this building and talk to the people. That's what I'm like. And so the temple, it was beloved, and the disciples are amazed. Man, this place is beautiful. In verse 6, Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. Now, this was not just a natural disaster or development project. This would have been seen as judgment from God. The temple was corrupt, and Jesus has been building to this for a while. In verse 5, the disciples say, look at how beautiful this place is. Back up just a little bit, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is watching people put money into the offering, and a widow puts in all she has to live on. Back up the verse before, and Jesus says, beware the teachers of the law, they devour widows' houses, they will be punished most severely. The temple was devouring widows' houses in order to be beautiful. Back up a little bit further, in chapter 20, we have the parable of the tenants, and and Wes spoke on this. And in the parable of the tenants, there's a picture of the vineyard, and the vineyard was Israel. And the the vineyard had been entrusted to people, and the people said, if we kill the son, we can keep the vineyard for ourselves. And a picture of what was going on. Back up a little bit to chapter 19, verse 45, and Jesus goes into the temple, and he starts to clear everything out. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And that phrase, den of robbers, is from Jeremiah chapter 7. See, Jesus was actually in what was called the second temple. 
The first temple was built by a man named Solomon, and then it was destroyed. And just before the first temple was destroyed, Jeremiah says these words, speaking to Israel. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand me before Come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? So Jesus, when he, when he pulls out this phrase, den of robbers, what he's referring to is the promise, the prophecy from Jeremiah that the first temple would be destroyed. And as he stands in the second temple using the same phrase, he's saying, this place isn't going to last much longer. Jesus is saying that the place that was supposed to be marked by prayer was where widows lost their homes. The place where people were supposed to look like God didn't. The religious leaders had decided to kill the son and take the vineyard. And like when a country closes a consulate, God says this temple's not going to be here anymore. And verse 7, the disciples say, when will this happen? And how will we know? Now, how many people have heard a sermon on Luke 21 before? Or you're, you've heard this passage before, like this is not the first time through this. How many people have heard it talked about like this is the end of the world, like literal end times? I'm putting my hand up. I'm like, yeah, every time I've read this, I've read this as more or less the end of the world. But I think verse 7 anchors us because Jesus says the temple will be destroyed The disciples say, when and how do we know? And then Jesus starts talking. So everything Jesus says is in response to the question, when will the temple be destroyed and how do we know? And then verse 32, Jesus says, the people listening to this, this generation, they're going to be around when this happens. So I think verse 7 and verse 32 anchor us in near history for them, but not all of it end times for us. Does that make sense? It made sense to me. So verse 7, they say, when will this happen and how do we know? And Jesus says, first, there's going to be wars and uprisings. It's kind of like the long-range forecast. If you're checking the weather, you're like, okay, well, what's the weather in Langley in June? You're like, okay, well, it's probably going to look like this. But then Jesus brings it a little bit closer and he said, but in the next 7 to 10 days, you can expect... It's not quite seven to ten days, but it's not much further out than that. Jesus says, before the wars and before the uprisings, you will be persecuted. You'll be arrested. You will be betrayed by friends and family. You will be hated by everybody. You step out the doors and and people will hate you. And some of you are going to die. See, I like to imagine that Jesus was walking along up until this point, and he's like, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and they're like, hmm. And then he stops, and he says, Wes, you're going to be arrested. I'm like, whoa, that's that's heavy. And and Randy, you might be betrayed. I'm like, oh, what are we going to do with this? Uli, you might die. And the disciples stop, and, and it's not abstract anymore. They're like, like, like us? Like that's going to happen to us? See, up until this point, Jesus, he's been teaching, and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And then Pharisees come and they're like, but what about? And he's like, yeah, well. And then the Sadducees, and he's like, boom. And it's just clap back, clap back, clap back. And he's like, whoa, blowing their minds. And every, all of the disciples would have been like, yeah, I'm on team Jesus. Woo, nobody can stand before us. And then Jesus stops and he says, well, you guys actually, in the near future, you're going to be arrested, persecuted, betrayed. And how do you absorb that? Do you think they just wrote it down? How, how do you process that? See, I, I don't know how they would have processed that, but then Jesus continues in verse 25. He starts talking about signs in the heaven, the skies, the tossing of the sea. He talks about terror and heavenly bodies and the Son of Man coming in glory. And see, I'm not 100% sure what it means, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It means something. And we might not understand, but it meant something then, and it meant something to them. And so we have to remember, why is Jesus saying all of this stuff? He's saying it so that the disciples will know when is the temple destroyed and what are the signs. And so I think that the disciples would have just packed all this stuff in their brain, and maybe as they're going about their day and their weeks and their months, it's not maybe every day they think about it, but it's rattling around in their brains. And if we fast forward, see, Luke, Luke wrote Luke, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life we have in the Bible, but Luke wrote a sequel. And the sequel to Luke is called Acts. And in the book of Acts, we fast forward a little bit, and we have Acts chapter 2. And here's Peter, and Peter would have heard Jesus' words about the, the signs and all of this stuff, and, and the Son of Man and the persecution. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the church, and everybody's kind of weaving around and, and all of the observers feel like they're drunk, but Peter stands up and he says, no, they're, they're not actually drunk. This is the Holy Spirit. He said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. See, I don't know how a bunch of people in a room with the Holy Spirit coming down on them is the same as sun and fire and blood in the sky. But for them, it did. It meant something to them. And so if we fast forward a little bit more, Acts chapter 7. There's a man named Stephen, and Stephen is arrested. And at part of his trial, he stands up and full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven and he says, Look. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what did Jesus say that they would see? That you would see the Son of Man, you would see signs in the heaven, and there would be persecution. And right after this, right after this in Acts 7, in Acts 8, Stephen is killed and it says Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So what did Jesus say would happen? Well, there would be uprisings and wars, earthquakes and signs in the heaven, but first you're going to be persecuted. And just a few months later, it comes to pass. And I think that Jesus said it so they wouldn't be devastated 
when it happened. So first the persecutions, the signs, then the uprisings. And 35 years after Jesus said this, in about 66 AD, the the Jewish nation was under Roman rule and they revolted. And some historians say this was the biggest rebellion in Roman history. And so they rose up and, and they tried to overthrow the Roman government, but Rome valued two things above all else, taxes and peace. And they loved peace so much, they would kill anyone they needed to get it. And so they took an army of 50,000 people and started to march through Israel. And they started in the north, and Jerusalem's kind of in the, in the center, and, and they just desolated towns and all opposition. And all of the refugees fleeing the Roman army, they would have come down to Jerusalem because it had walls, supplies, and soldiers. And so here, there's the persecution, there's the signs, there's the uprisings, and there's the war. And in, in 69 AD, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. In 70 AD, it fell. Titus, son of Vespasian, broke through the walls, destroyed the temple, killed 90% of the people in there, and took the remaining 10% as slaves. The people who devoured widows' houses, who had turned the temple into a den of robbers, who killed the son to keep the vineyard, were gone. The city fell, the temple was destroyed. Now there's lots in this passage and loads we covered and lots more we didn't, but one question that I kept coming back to as I was getting ready for this sermon is why would Jesus say this? Is this encouraging? Is it helpful? I don't think there's a Hallmark card for the city you love is about to be destroyed. It's not a common thing we talk about. So why in the world did Jesus say it? Especially with the disciples not knowing, or sorry, knowing they could do nothing to change it. See, I think if you're like me, you like good news. We want good things to be true and unpleasant things to be untrue. That's why if you hear bad news, one of the first responses we give is, no, it can't be. We want unpleasant things to be untrue, but often the unpleasant is all too true. And I think that even though what Jesus was saying was bleak, I think it would have given comfort to the disciples. And not hot cup of hot chocolate on a rainy day comfort, but I was wearing my seatbelt in a car accident comfort. It won't be pleasant but you'll get through. It was, it was a deep, rock-solid foundation comfort. See, Jesus telling the disciples, I think it was the comfort of when these big and terrible things happen, it's not your fault. Have you ever experienced catastrophe? tragedy, deep loss, what would you give to know it wasn't your fault? See, I think for the disciples that meant a huge deal. And Jesus said, you can't undo this, but you can avoid the worst of it. He said, remember that when the army invades, that that the same walls that keep armies out keep people in. Don't go in the city. If you go in the city, you won't survive. But he said, remember how David fled from Saul for years in the Old Testament by hiding in the hills and the mountains of Jerusalem? Do that. 
If you make it to the mountains, you can hide forever. If you go to the city, you'll die. And don't go back for your stuff. Value your life more than your car and your home and in your investments and all of that stuff. Value your life above all else in this instance. He gave a lot of sympathy. He said, it's going to be hard. He's not saying it's going to be easy. He said it's going to be hard, and especially for pregnant women. I don't think Jesus is being mean. I think he's just telling the truth. That if you're pregnant, if you've got a little one, it's really hard to run. And Jesus is saying, his heart, I think, is breaking. He's like, it's going to be really, really hard. But he also says, I'm going to get you ready for it. He says, don't worry about how to defend yourself. I'll help you. And all throughout, he says, watch out that you're not deceived and follow the wrong person or get caught up in the wrong thing. Stand firm. Leave Jerusalem when it's surrounded by an army. Look for the signs, and when you see the signs, get ready. Be careful. Be always on the watch and pray. See, Jesus gave his disciples a heads up so they weren't devastated when it happens. I think for that early church, when all of this stuff started to happen, it would have been really easy to think, what are we doing wrong? Why has God forgotten us? Why have we been abandoned? And Jesus, he's bringing them comfort, and I don't think he's teaching them to look on the bright side. Hey, you lost your home, but now you don't have to mow. Oh, (laughs) thanks, Jesus. Jesus isn't saying look on the bright side. He's saying, look on the other side. Look on the far side. Look after. See, as people, we can get so caught up in our pain. We can come face to face with loss. And when the loss hits a certain level, we forget that there's an after. We feel like the only thing we will ever know is this pain and this loss. We feel like we will never move past this or process it, that nothing good could ever come again. And Jesus is saying, don't look on the bright side. Look on the other side. He ends this saying, pray that you may be able to withstand, escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, I think that's a beautiful picture. He says, you know, we're here now, and there's persecutions and arrests, and sufferings and death, and scatterings, and earthquakes and pestilences and plagues, wars, rebellions, uprisings, and Jesus. Pray that you may may be able to stand before the Son of Man, that through all of this, Jesus, Jesus is after I think that's one of the biggest things Jesus was giving them is is the reality that there is an after. The phrase son of man pulls us again back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Daniel. And uh, the the youth right now are going through a series on Daniel, which is really neat. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision and he said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, son of man, clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, Jesus says at the end of all of this, pray that you may be able to stand before the one whose kingdom lasts forever, whose dominion lasts forever, who will never be second to anyone ever again other than the Father. There is an after. After the things that you cannot imagine anything after is Jesus. It's not the end. So the persecution happened, the rebellion, the uprising. The church was scattered, and I love walking through biblical history. You can actually go where the church was scattered. Uh, Different places throughout the world, um, we were able to go to Cappadocia. Uh, Cappadocia is famous for its hot air balloons, but the picture's a little... Um, dark on the left, but you can see there's a cliff face in all those holes. That's where Christians went, and the rock was soft enough that they could just literally carve homes out of the rock. And then on the right, this was their church. And Justin, if you go to the next one, up there, you can, you can see pictures on the right. It's a little grainy, but pictures of, from the early church having been scattered from Jerusalem. And I think the one on the left, I think that was kind of like their, their worship place. There was an after. See, they, they left Jerusalem. They lost their homes. They lost their inheritance. They lost their national identity. The future they had imagined completely disappeared. And they literally went to carve a living out of rock. And Peter, he writes these people a letter in the book of First Peter. He wrote to the people who left the safety of walls their inheritance of homes, the income of their farms, the tools of their trade, to those who went to Cappadocia. First Peter 1 says this, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the fuller knowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Scattered exiles, you've been chosen. To those who have lost and ran and suffered, you have grace and peace by the boatload. And Peter goes on, he tells those who lost their inheritance that they have an inheritance in heaven that cannot spoil. He tells those who lost wealth that their faith is worth more than gold. And in 1 Peter 2, he tells the people who lost the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, he tells them this. As you, and here the you is plural, to uh, quote our South American brethren, it's y'all. As y'all come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you, y'all, also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Y'all are a chosen people. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation. Y'all are God's special possession, that y'all may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, I don't think that journey felt like from darkness to light for them but there's a deeper reality. See, the temple was destroyed, but God was building the temple in people. 
The priests were lost, but the priests have been chosen. The nation had fallen, and you are the nation. And this is the heart of the gospel. So what does this mean for us? I think like the disciple complementing the architecture, our identity can get so wrapped up in building and tradition and beautiful things that when we lose them, it feels like the end of the world. See, Jesus warned them so that when it happened, they wouldn't be devastated. And that was something that um, Bethel had to wrestle with. You might have heard the story of how this campus kind of came to be. There was a a group of people here. Uh, I was the pastor at Bethel. And a few few months before Pastor Kevin and I had our first conversation, God led us as Bethel into a season of resurrection. And so week after week after week, we read John 11, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. We talked about how unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a harvest. And we brought pots up here and we planted seeds as as a symbol of of what we were letting die. We had to wrestle with the idea of what the building meant to us. If we lost the building, were we still the people? What was our inheritance? But see, God led us through all that before anything happened. And it wasn't easy, but six months after that, When we voted to fold as an organization and transfer the building, it was hard. But we weren't devastated. God had gotten us ready. We were still the people. We were still the church. We were still the temple. Buildings mean so much to us. And it can be so easy to ground our identity in a building. And maybe you faced or are facing the loss of a house. Or maybe an anticipated inheritance has disappeared for you. Maybe you've had to move and you've lost not just a house, but a home. Maybe you've had a context that was so significant and formational and to lose it feels like the end. Maybe you've lost a fortune and you don't know how you're gonna go on. Maybe you've never had a fortune And what you're struggling with is constantly living with less than you've imagined. And you can't see a future. Maybe you've lost deep and significant relationships, and maybe they're not lost, but you've been betrayed, backstabbed and hurt by the very people you trusted, and you wonder how you can move on. Maybe you've lost your health through pestilence, pandemic, diagnosis. Maybe it's grim or even terminal, and you say, I have no future. Buildings and places and money and health and friends, to lose any of them makes it feel like the world is ending. But if that is you this morning, just be still a moment, still your heart, and hear the words of Jesus. This is not the end. This is not the end. See, there is an after. After all the things that we cannot imagine after, there's an after. And you might wonder how there could be anything other than the end. But this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel, that my well-being, my future, who I am is not determined by what I have or where 
I'm going, it's anchored in God. See, the temple is gone, but the temple is here. That makes us the people of God. This means that Jesus likes to be here, not in this building. I'm sure he's fine with the building. But where he's chosen to live is in us as people. We are where God wants to be. And what that means is that if God's presence is in us as people, then God is in the middle of what we're going through with us. See, Jesus warned and prepared his disciples for what they would face so they wouldn't be devastated, and he promised he'd meet them on the other side, and also that he'd be in the middle of it all. Now, you might have noticed, Luke 21, verse 16, Jesus says, some of you will be put to death. And what does verse 18 say? Not a hair of your head will perish. Do you think he forgot he just said that some of them would be put to death? I don't think so. I think he's saying that even, even if you're put to death, that you can be put to death and not a hair on your head will perish. And where do we hear that word perish? Well, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, even to the point of losing your life, there is an after. You will not perish. But it's easy to get discouraged. In verse 34, Jesus says, be careful your hearts aren't weighed down. Does anyone have a heavy heart? Maybe today? We all imagine our lives. We imagine we'll have this much money or do this job or live in this kind of house. And it's heavy if we imagined we'd be rich and we're poor. It's heavy if we imagined we'd be married and we're single or divorced. It's heavy if we imagined we'd be close to our family and we're estranged or in meaningful community and we're lonely. It's heavy if we imagined we'd be healthy and we're sick. And heavy hearts can do three things, Jesus says in verse 34. Carousing, which I think a way to explain is distracted with pleasure. Whether with sex or money or excitement or adventure, living for the weekend, travel, it's just anything to distract ourselves from what's going on in our hearts. Looks different for each of us. For me, my struggle is often escape through media. Maybe mindless scrolling on my phone or movies or video games, even books. Jesus says, heavy hearts can turn to drunkenness. And it might be alcohol or it might be another substance, but I think that that's just a desire to find a way to forget or to be numb. It might be work or food, just anything to forget for a while. I know when I get stressed, I'll start eating. This week, I was just standing in the kitchen with a bag of chips. That's not a good sign for me. <laughs> And Jesus says, heavy hearts can just get weighed down with anxieties. And if, if, you're, if you're like me, you've had moments where you just sit on the couch and you feel hopeless and helpless and there's no way out. And honestly, in those moments, sometimes my prayer out loud is just, Jesus, I feel really overwhelmed right now and I don't know what to do. It's a super spiritual prayer. But Jesus says, pray. Talk to me. He invites us to pay attention to what's going on and to have a conversation with him. 
And so I'm going to invite the band up in just a couple of questions as we close. Number one, what is Jesus saying to you? What is he saying to us? See, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He spoke to my friend Paul. He spoke to us as a church at Bethel. What is he saying today? You might be in a season where it feels like you've gone through it all. Sickness, betrayal, disaster, loss, moving, everything short of being surrounded by an army. And you don't know how you're going to make it. And maybe this morning, Jesus is just reminding you, it is not the end. It is not the end. You might not get out of it, but you will get through it. There is an after. And maybe life is pretty good for you these days, but Jesus is reminding you that your security and identity isn't wrapped up in buildings or tradition or relationships or inheritance. It's tempting to do it, but it builds our life in a wrong foundation. And when Jerusalem falls, we go with it. Instead, like building a home on a rock, maybe Jesus is reminding us to anchor our security and identity on Jesus. To live into the idea that if we have him, we have enough. And maybe your heart has become heavy and you find your days filled with distracting yourself with pleasure, turning to substances or other things to numb and forget, or simply you feel hopeless, helpless, and overwhelmed. And if this is you, Jesus invites you into a conversation. So I would encourage you to talk to him alone, turn to the person beside you, or we would love to pray with you too. We have a team at the front and in the in the back, back there in that room, we would love to pray with you. So would you stand with me? So Jesus, we just ask that you would give us open, open ears to hear your voice. That where we have anchored our identity in the wrong place, that you would help us to shift and to build our house on a more firm foundation, on you. That where we are caught up and we feel like we have experienced loss after loss, God, that you would remind us that there is an after. That not a head on our, our hair on our heads will perish. And God, where our hearts have become heavy, I pray you would speak to us and teach us to speak to you. So God, bring us into a place where we're just aware of your presence. And we pray this in your name. Amen.